0: And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among us, all who are among around us now therefore now therefore our o oh, our god listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake o oh, lord make your face to shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate o oh, my god incline your ear and hear open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name.
1: Church, it's a great honor for me to be here with you, because it has been five weeks since I've last had the privilege of preaching the opening of God's Word with you. And and I really thank you for your prayers. This last season, as you know, has been incredibly challenging for myself and my family. And God has been using this time to heal, to renew, to correct, to grow, to refresh. And I thank you so much for your patience and your support and your prayers. We, we know a lot of you are praying for us, and it means so much to us, and so I'm so excited to jump into this sex. I, I have five weeks of pent-up energy, ready to just unleash. So, five times, 50 minutes. Alright, let me begin by sharing a daily occurrence that happens in my home, in any home of a parent. It goes something like this. Dad, would you do blank because of blank? So, my kids will appeal to me and ask me for lots of things all the time. And sometimes it can be overwhelming, the the immense number of requests thrown at me every second of every day. And a lot of times my kids will add a little extra something-something to make it that much more irresistible for me to say no, right? Dad, would you play with me because today is Sabbath? Or, Or sometimes they'll try to subtly manipulate me and say, Dad, will you play with me because you never play with me? And I'm like, hey, that's manipulation. I try to show them that that they're trying to manipulate their dad, but 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 they say different things like that. Dad, would you give me that toy because so and so has that toy, right? We all do this at some level. We make appeals to authorities or to friends or family, and we we tag a little because of this. Therefore, answer this, please. And and I think that applies to our relationship with God. All of us. Have times where if you're a Christian and you prayed, or even if you're not a Christian and you prayed, you, you may have prayed, God, would you do this? Because if you do this, I'll never sin again. Yeah. Or in the words of Martin Luther, Lord, uh, God, save me. Or actually, I think he was praying to a saint. Save me, and I will give myself to a monastery and serve you for life. Do this because of this. God, give me this because I've been good. Or, God, I deserve this because I've had a great track record in so-and-so sin. All of us have that. And today, what we're going to see in our passage is good reasons, the best reasons for God to answer our prayers. And how God shows his incredible, great mercy towards people who repeatedly fail him. We're going to do this by going through the prayer of Daniel. Now, throughout the whole book of Daniel, we've been able to see that Daniel is a real... Big prayer guy. He prays all the time, even if it means threat of death. He prays three times a day, as we saw. Over and over, he prays. But it's one thing to know someone prays a lot. It's another thing to know what he is praying. You can tell a lot about a person about what they say to God, how they say it. There's a lot of lessons on prayer for all of us today from this prayer from thousands of years ago. So we get the privilege of crawling into the heart of God in mind of one of the greatest men of prayer in history and see how it applies for us today. So let's start in verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1. We're only going to be going through the first half of Daniel chapter 9, and then next week, Pastor Daniel will be preaching the next half. I, I swear, I think about you all the time because of this book. It's like, Daniel, and I'm like, oh man, you're not you, okay? All right, now let's go to this context, historical context, verse 1. In the first year of Darius the son of someone by descent of Mede. You know, even though I've gone through all this schooling, they don't teach you how to say all these names. These names are hard, okay, for anyone. So if you ever feel like dumb because you can't say the name right, hey, you're in good company, all right? The son of somebody by descent of a Mede. Remember, Media and Persia came together as a superpower to take over the, the whole known world, okay? So Darius comes from the Mede side, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans which is another name for Babylon. Remember, Daniel was exiled and a prisoner, a slave, in Babylon. And now it's been about 70 years almost, and he's been in Babylon. And now a superpower uh, took over his nation, and now that superpower has been replaced by another superpower. And Daniel still is around. Which Isn't that such a sweet thing? I love that. Though Daniel is just a slave, he outlasts the mighty kingdom of Babylon. Because God outlasts them all, Mm -hmm. and he's the one who sets up kings and kingdoms. So, imagine as you see Daniel in this verse 2, we're going to go to verse 2, he's an old man, and he's studying the book of Jeremiah. Okay, look, in the first year of the reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years... That, according to the word of the Lord, or Yahweh, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. In other words, Daniel was having a Bible study with the book of Jeremiah, or the scroll of Jeremiah. He was studying Jeremiah, and as he was reading chapter 29, apparently, he comes to the realization, the 70 years are about to be done! We're going to go home! It's over. God promises in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 30 to Moses, and then later on we see this in Jeremiah chapter 29. Do you look on the screen with me or flip to your Bible quickly because we're going to be in Jeremiah 29 just for a quick minute. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 10. Very, very important chapter in the Old Testament. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed, not 69, not 71, 70, the Lord wrote it down, it set in, day in stone, he wrote it, it will come to pass, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, namely the the land of Israel. This is so important to take heart. God, when he decrees it, it will happen. That's why we can have great hope and confidence, because he's writing history. He doesn't just know history, he's writing history. That's how he knows the future. He's writing the future. And this is the God whom you we serve and who we can have great comfort we're kinda of in a lull right now, like twenty twenty, we were just used to like terrible news every day. And we're kinda of like a nice nice little peacetime lull. But you but you know, guys, something's gonna come around the corner. And we can take great comfort in heart, no matter what that is, because God is writing the story. God is leading history for good purposes. If you keep reading Jeremiah chapter twenty-nine, we come upon one of the most quoted verses that even unbelievers will know. You talk to a Christian who know nominal lukewarm never goes to church never part of a church and they know this passage Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope and all kinds of people says amen right get that on my pillow get that on my arm amen Verse 12, this is what they forget. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord, and I'll restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Okay. The reality is the exile didn't only just go to Babylon. Is that God's people were actually dispersed throughout the whole world. And so God was going to bring them back here. But this passage, I wanted to highlight it because so many of us, who who he, who has heard this passage before? Okay? okay, most people have heard this passage. But how often when we hear this passage do we hear the next part? You will seek me with all your heart. So often we want the blessing without the seeking. We want the treasure without the heart. We, 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 we don't really want God, we just want all the blessings that come with God. And that's why I want you to remember this context. For us Christians, this passage is still relevant for us. We can take great hope that no matter how dark the valley, no matter how dark the sin, God has good plans for us. But it's, in, it's, it's by condition that if we seek him with all of our heart, and we know that he gives us the spirit to empower us to do that. We're going to get back to this passage, or at least this concept about Israel seeking him later on in this chapter, because it's important. And it's something that that I want to highlight later. Now let's look at verse 3. Then I turned to my, my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Something really beautiful about this verse. Let me make a couple side comments about some of this these details that may be confusing for some of us. Sackcloth was a really rough material, kind of like um, potatoes potato bag, like a what is, what is that called? Potato sack. A potato bag. A burlap bag, right? Imagine putting that on, like how scratchy and itchy that would be. It was probably made out of animal skins, but extremely uncomfortable. And what they would do is they would put on sackcloth or some sort of garment like that and they put ashes on them, and what the outward represent outward um, stuff going on would be representing what's going on inside. Their hearts are absolutely dismayed. And they're in despair. They're, they're uncomfortable. And so they're fasting for some resolution. Or they're mourning for something. That's what typically sackcloth and ashes and would, would be connected to. Now, let me share something that's so encouraging. We're about to read Daniel embark into this epic prayer. This really powerful prayer. What is the catalyst to this prayer? In other words, what happens with Daniel, that causes him, launches him to want to pray. Is it a vision? Is it a dream? What is it? It's the Word. Mm -hmm. Daniel is having a good old-fashioned Bible study with the book of Jeremiah, and as he is studying the book, and probably studying the book for the 10th millionth time, whatever it is, he sees something that he's never seen before, And it catalyzes him, it it launches him to pray and intercede for his people. And I think that's so powerful. Because often I hear from Christians, man, I just really wish I heard God's voice. Sometimes I want to say, oh, so you don't read your Bible? They're like, oh yeah, I read my Bible. But you know what I'm saying, Sam. You know what I'm saying. Like, I want to hear God's voice. You can hear God's voice every day. And I and I and I don't want to exaggerate. But every time I open up this book with an open heart, notice the open heart part, I hear from God. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's so experientially real. It's almost as if he's sitting across my table speaking to me. Now I don't want to overly romanticize cuz I've days words. I open this up and I'm like dust. It is dry. But more often than not, if I come with an open heart, he speaks. And I don't need a dream or a vision. Yeah. Now, now, let me say this. I pray for dreams and visions. And recently, God has given a number of prophetic dreams and visions in my life that has really helped me and spoken to me. So I'm not downplaying that because the same God, word that I'm pointing to you is the same word that talks about dreams and visions. All right? So yes and amen. Both and. But don't ever let this become subject to dreams and visions. This is here. Dreams and visions are under here. And everything that you see or experience or any vision or trance or anything crazy, supernatural you experience, you got to put it under here. It must be vetted by here. And so you see Daniel, a man who had so many dreams and visions, more than most of us will ever have. Crazy, supernatural things going on. The angel's about to show up at the end of this chapter and speak to him. Crazy stuff. And yet he is deeply impacted by God's word and responds as if it was God speaking. That's encouraging to me because we have even more of a Bible than he does. That should encourage you. Yes, pray for dreams and visions. And I pray for that. But 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 ask God to meet him in this, and I and I promise you, if you go to him with an open heart, you'll start hearing him more and more. One more point I made. Daniel probably read. I, I said this earlier. Daniel probably read Jeremiah, tons of times. Probably had most of it memorized. And you know what? A lot of times we can read this book and we get discouraged because we don't understand something. And I just want to encourage you to just keep going back to this book. Yeah. And know that maybe maybe it won't break through on the 10th time. Maybe it'll be the 12th time you read that passage. Mm-hmm. But just keep going back at it like Daniel. And maybe you'll see something beautiful like Daniel did. And in fact, indeed, if you are in Christ, you will see more and more beautiful things by His Spirit. Mm-hmm. All right, let me make another point about Daniel praying. I'm going to ask a very obvious question. Um, Actually, a question that doesn't seem very obvious. Why is Daniel praying? Now, I know that strikes you. There's just just a weird silence. You're like, okay, of course, he should pray, right? He's reading the Word, and he's Daniel. He prays. Why is Daniel praying when he's about to pray? Because if you follow the rest of this chapter, Daniel is praying... For the very things that God says he will already do. So it's like this. God says in Jeremiah, Deuteronomy, and other places. I will deliver my people after 70 years. And then Daniel reads that and says, God, would you deliver your people? It's been 70 years. What? Why? If you're like me, you're going to be saying, whoa, Daniel, Daniel, don't pray that. He's already said he'll do that. How does that make sense? Why would Daniel pray the very things that God has promised he will do? Well, there lies one of the great mysteries and great privileges in the Bible. That God invites his people to partner with him to bring about his purposes. So, if he wants to bring mass revival like we've never heard and seen before in Minneapolis, you know what he'll probably do? He'll probably start stirring in his people to start fasting and praying for revival. And the boom, revival comes. So did God do it or did we do it? Like, yes, right? Like, we work together. He stirs in our heart. It, it is amazing that God, in how powerful and great he is, he wa- wants to partner with us. And rarely in scripture do you see ever God do things without partnering with his broken people to do it. That is crazy to me. That is so humbling and so amazing. Because if I was God, I'd be like, you know what? You guys just screw up everything you do. Let me just do it my own. Like, I do everything, I'm perfect, I will just do it better, why do I partner with you? And yet, he's so pleased to partner and bring us in to the ministry that he has for us, and that he wants to do in our cities, in our world. Isn't that so cool? There's this beautiful picture, right? uh, some, some theologians will call it combat- combatibilism. All right, compatibilism. Okay, don't worry about memorizing it. I was texting the elders like, "What is that word?" Go, sing, something. Right? I forgot the word too, and it took me forever to remember it. Don't worry about the me- the, the word. Worry about the concept that God wants a partner with you. Even though God is sovereign and we have free choices, somehow they overlap, and God wants to use them together mm-hmm. for His purposes. Do not fall into the hyper um, kind of pendulum swing of fatalism. What is fatalism? Think about the word fatalism. Fate. Oh, it's just fate. If God wants to bring revival, then he'll bring revival. God wants to save my neighbor, he'll save my neighbor. God wants to restore my marriage and save it, he'll do it. Yeah, that's true theology, but it's actually kind of missing the fuller picture, right? God has called us to partner with him as well as the fact that he will do it. And that's that's a perplexing reality we see throughout scripture. He will do it. And we'll do it with them. and that's hard. And I can't, I can't fully grasp philosophically how that works. But we have complete free choices, and yet God is completely sovereign, and He works together with us. All right, I'm going to keep. I'm not going to keep beating that point. But if you have questions about that, I get that that's tricky, because we either want to say it's all God or it's all man, because it's complicated to to bring them together. But yet Scripture brings them together, and what God has brought together, together let no man tear asunder. Now, let's go to verse 4. Finally, to the content of the prayer. So, we're going to start off with an invocation. Complicated word, basically to say we're invoking somebody. Who am I praying to is the the heading for verse 4. Verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, Whenever we pray, we should stop and consider, who am I speaking to? Daniel's prayer, first and foremost, is grounded in the character and the nature of who God is. Mm -hmm. He doesn't just go, go jumping into it. He sits on the reality of who God is. Often, when we think of the word confession, we think of confessing sin. And yes, we're going to talk a lot about confessing sin in this passage. But throughout this passage, we see another kind of confession. Confessing who God is. God, you are like this. You are great and wonderful. And that's how Daniel starts his prayer, and so should we. We should start off declaring who he is, who we're talking to, uh, posturing our hearts to know who we're speaking to. God, you are blank. This is who you are. This is what you do. So when you pray, church, declare who you're praying to. Now, after establishing that foundation, he transitions into what we would typically know as confession confession of sin. Look at verse 5. 5 through 15. We're not going to go through every verse in 5 through 15. It's a lot there. I'm going to summarize a lot of it, but verse 5 gets at the heart of it in the beginning. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. So this whole section from till verse 16, unpacks the ways that Israel has been unfaithful to God. Now, there is an old preacher, he's deceased now, named James Montgomery Boyce, and he kind of sums up this whole section. So I got two slides for you, and it just goes through all the different verses. So this will be a quick-fire way to get the totality of what Daniel was owning. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws, what we just read. Verse 6, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Verse 7, we are covered with shame. Verse 8, O oh Lord, we and our kings, our princes, and our fathers have, are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. Verse 9, we have rebelled. Verse 10, we have not obeyed the Lord our God. Verse 11, we have sinned against you. Verse 12, or 13, we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins. Verse 14, we have not obeyed him. In verse 15, we have sinned, and we have done wrong. Okay, over and over again. I know that felt like a lot and overkill but I just covered a lot of verses really quickly, all right? But, but what I was trying to show you is just the whole nature of their rebellion. See, Israel's problem was not just oopsie. It was not little mistakes. It's not a, as, as sometimes we use language like, oh, it's just, I'm a beautiful mess, right? It, it's, not, it, it, it's not brokenness alone. It is broken for sure. But it's rebellion that lasted for hundreds of years that was likened to cheating on Yahweh with another mistress or spitting in his face. This is some of the language that scripture uses, the prophets use, about what Israel did. This is the kind of sin we're talking about. Now, I want you to notice that Daniel says we, we, us, over and over again. And if you're a careful reader, that should trigger you for a second. Because if you've read Daniel with us, you've noticed that Daniel's pretty amazing. Like, if someone was like, we did this, I'd be like, no, I didn't. Come on, man, get that out of there. Maybe you did it, but don't put that on me. See, hot topic alert. This passage has been used a lot by some people recently. And, and I get it. It's a struggle because historically... American culture, and I grew up in America, so I, I own this as part of the culture that I grew up in, we pride on individualism. Which comes with a lot of strengths, but weaknesses too. And so whenever you look at honor-shame cultures, like the Bible's honor-shame culture and other cultures that talk in very corporate or we-like categories, something inside of us just kind of like grows up. You know what I'm saying? We're like, mm, not me. That was you. And we struggle with this. It is straight up perplexing and sometimes offensive when we think about it. Because think about Daniel. He, as far as we've seen in the passage, we haven't seen one time where he's blown it, right? Now, all of sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know he sins. And in fact, in verse 20 on the screen, Jan- Daniel chapter 9, verse 20, next week's passage, he says this, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sins of my people, Israel, and on and on. So we see that Daniel actually is confessing his own sin as well, not just his people. But there's something very, very humbling and powerful about Daniel associating with his people, owning his people's sin, though he is not such a great sinner, as far as we can tell. Now, how do we make sense of this? Because it doesn't fully fit, like it just doesn't, it, 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 it just grinds, it, it rubs on me, if I'm going to be honest. Because because Daniel's so great. Now, let me let me explain a couple of things. It isn't Daniel's fault that Israel is so rebellious and is in exile. In fact, he was a little kid, basically. A young teenager when he came into exile. Right? It's not his fault, but it is his responsibility Let me try to create a category I think that would be helpful for you. Please listen carefully because there's a lot of places where I could just fall off a slope and some of you guys are going to just go crazy at me with emails. We're not always responsible for every outcome but we are responsible to do something if it's in our sphere. Let me explain some examples. Husbands, it may not be your fault. There are different issues in your marriage. You may not be at fault for every messed up thing in your marriage. But you are responsible for it. that help? A little bit? We may not be at fault for all the problems in Minneapolis. But we are responsible for it. You are not at fault for all the weaknesses of this church. But if you're a member, you are responsible for it. Does, it, does that help how I'm using the word responsible? Responsible has a wide range of usage, so you could say responsible in the sense that you did it, you are the one culpable, but I, the way I'm trying to frame it is responsible is, man, we got to do something about it. We ought to do something, even if you're not the direct person who did something about it. And so Daniel, here's this guy, he's this great leader, he feels responsible for his people, even though he hasn't done all of this stuff at the degree and heinousness of his people. Are you, are you guys tracking with me? I'm going to get a lot of emails tomorrow. Okay. Let me give you another quick example. Imagine our church is really bad at welcoming people. I think we're okay. We're not great. We're not terrible. But imagine we're the worst. Okay? That is a sin at some level because we've been commanded to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us, right? It's not just a casual, ideal thing. It's something that God has called us to is be a welcoming people as we've been generously welcomed. And let's say you yourself are just the stellar opposite of the church. You're just the best. You Welcome, everybody. You're, you're the example that we should follow. You yourself can still say, God, we are so bad at this. You can own it because we are one. Because in Christ, we are one people. When we struggle, all one struggles. Romans speaks about all struggling. Because we're so connected. Even though you may not be the one particularly at fault. Is that, is that helping, guys, a little bit? This is an important category throughout Scripture that we rebel against, often, as Americans. So, one person struggling, we can easily say, well, it's not my problem. If one person saying, well, it doesn't affect me. Well, it does, because you're in covenant community. This corporate reality is very, very important throughout Scriptures. It's so important that we don't have the gospel without it, but we'll get there later. Now, similarly, Daniel is speaking as a priestly representative of his people. And he loves his people, so he confesses in some way as if he did it all. Now this passage has been brought up a lot, specifically regarding race. Okay? This is the hot topic alert. Like, I'm, I'm ramping up. Okay? There's a lot of debate right now in the church regarding guilt and shame, regarding race and culpability and reparations, and those are important conversations. And some churches are literally splitting down the center because of it. I have friends who have left denominations because of it. I have friends who do not talk to each other because of it. Churches are getting wrecked right now by the division regarding specifically race and shame and repentance. And so on one side, you're going to look at this chapter and say, hey, this teaches us that we can mourn people's sin, but we don't own people's sin unless we've done it. You only own what you've done. And others say, no, 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 this passage teaches us that even if you didn't exactly do it, you are still so culpable at some level and you need to own it. Now let me let me address this, okay? Because there are people out there who are going to look at you if you are white in this room and they're going to say, you need to repent of your whiteness. You guys have heard this. Some of you heard this. You must repent of your whiteness. Your whiteness is a stain. Everything you have has been taken. You must repent of it. And let me make this is so clear, even though there's some complexities. It is very simple too. God does not despise the color of your skin. God does not call you to be ashamed of being white. God does not call you to repent for being white. If you are in Christ, there is no shame and no condemnation. You need to hear this because there is a lot of white guilt and shame that is being pushed right now in our culture. That because you're white, you now owe people something. Now, you may owe someone something, but it's not because you're white. It's really, really important. Do not let people take this passage out of context to shame you so that you can respond dutifully in the way they want you to respond. Here are a few ways that this passage does not work. First of all, I just mentioned it again. Daniel was a represented covenant leader of his people. So he's representing them and he's owning it. Israel was not unified under skin color. Or race, or, eth- or, or, even, or even ethnicity, because you had foreigners among them. Or even uh, class. They were united around one God with one covenant that they were all committed to. There is no white people covenant, yeah. there is no representative white person, Pope head, that everyone has a shared commitment to. Across the world, there's a variety of cultures and commitments among uh, different people who look white. White people are not a shared people group. God will not hold you accountable to stand in line with all the trappings of white people. Okay? Race is a socially constructed category. There's only one race in the Bible. The human race. That's so important. Now, we can operate and talk about that way because that's what the world does, but I really don't feel comfortable with that way. Now, the danger of what I'm just saying is something called colorblindness. And I addressed that in my seminar this last year. That is a danger. There are significant differences and we have to understand that. So I reject colorblindness if you know what that is. So if you haven't heard that seminar, please check it out. And I can address it to you. But our society does operate operate under these categories, so we need to understand how to navigate them biblically, lovingly, wisely, compassionately. And so I welcome you to listen to our podcast this week. There's another side of this that is going to make some of you guys are like, amen. You're going to make me feel uncomfortable this week, all right? Um, The pastors and I are going to try to continue to lead as we think through these challenging cultural uh, divisions that we have. And so we're going to do a midweek podcast this week talking about this minefield about race and critical theory and all this different stuff, reparations, and all these conversations that the world is having. And the church needs to have um, a thoughtful, biblical answer. Back to the text, okay? Verses 7 and 8. I want you to look at the word belong, that's going to come in verse 7 and 8, in the following passages, and look at what belongs to Israel and what belongs to God. Verse 7 and 8. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, fill in the blank, belongs open shame. As it is to say to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. I just want to make this point. This is a far cry from the kind of convention, convent, confession that I sometimes have. <sighs> Father, I messed up, sorry. And I just kind of move on. Father, forgive me. Sorry. did it again. Or, or, dear God, I'm sorry the devil made me do it. Dear God, I made a mistake. My bad. Dear God, I failed myself and did not live up to my standards. I wasn't healthy and did not, I neglected my self-care. Some of you guys heard the fake repentance of Kirk Franklin this last week after that audio clip was leaked of him just cursing out and threatening his son. It's the same kind of repentance that we have in our culture. God, I'm sorry, but other people made it. Or, God, I'm sorry, but it really wasn't me. It was really my circumstances. We can learn a lot about what true confession looks like from Daniel. He's very specific, and he owns it. He does not excuse it. So often, when I get in fights with my wife or fights with people, I love to excuse and justify myself by my circumstances. Oh, because this happened. That's why I responded. And everybody else would do it the same way. No, no, no. He owns it. And so I encourage church, when we confess our sin, be specific. Go to the depths of the heart behind the sin. Don't just gloss over, God, I messed up, I looked at porn again. Or God, I got angry again at my kids again. Or God, I was gossiping again. Uh, No, no, God, forgive me because I I treated and dehumanized the image of God. I deserve shame. And yet you, you are righteous. Get to the heart of it when you confess your sins, church. Do not... State on the surface, get to the heart. Look at verse 7. You look at the word he uses. Treachery. You see that? Treachery. Treachery is a political word. It's not just a oops. I messed up. Treachery. Traitor. God forgive me for looking at that person with lust. I betrayed my wife. You see, you get at the heart of the sin. You get specific. You know, I just messed up again. I shouldn't go there. Right? There is a allegiance, a political allegiance in our hearts that are exposed when we sin. So get to the heart of it. Use proper biblical specific language about our sin. I try to dethrone you. God, you told me to do this, and I said I don't give a rip. Get real about the sin when you give it to God. What else belongs to God in verse nine? To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Okay, let's stop there. That sounds wonderful. And it does. It is. In Hebrew, you can see it a little bit better. This, These words, mercy and forgiveness, are in the plural. So basically it says the, the manifold mercies, the manifold forgiveness, the great, the never-ending. The, there's so many of the this mercies and forgiveness. That's, that's what the Hebrew is trying to emphasize. But notice this word for. The Hebrew word "key," which is often a grounding, in word. Because we have rebelled against him. That perplexes me. It doesn't make sense, right? To the Lord belongs mercy and forgiveness because we have rebelled against him. And then if you keep reading on in this passage, it just, he just calls out more and more of their sins. How does that work? Why would be, mercy and forgiveness belong to God because of their sin? Well, two, two ways to think about this passage. Both could be true. If we keep reading this passage, you're going to see over and over again how much Israel is messed up. And so you can think, knowing the God of this Bible, saying, the fact that they're even alive is a very forgiving and merciful God. That's amazing. Another way you can look at it is that it's been about 70 years, almost, the time is almost fulfilled, of them suffering in exile, paying their debts. And you can say, now mercy and forgiveness belongs to God because the forgiveness is... Uh, because the, the payment has been paid. There's no debt left. Now God can show mercy and forgiveness. He couldn't show mercy and forgiveness before because he, they still needed to pay for their sins. But now that it's been filled up and the, the, the cup has been poured empty, and now God can give forgiveness and mercy. Regardless of the interpretation, I'm not sure which one, God is incredibly merciful and forgiving to even allow Israel to exist. He's incredibly merciful and forgiving to give them a chance to bring them back home. There's a tension in verse 13 I'm going to skip because of time. But 13 is problematic because Daniel was very, very uncomfortable with the fact that... Let me just read it and then I'll make a comment and skip a lot of my notes. All this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. What is Daniel saying right here? Daniel's saying, listen, God... This prophecy is about to be fulfilled. It's about to be 70 years. But we have not yet turned to you. Oh God, have mercy on us. We still have hard hearts. So even if you give us a new location, it doesn't matter because our hearts are still the same. So it doesn't matter what state they're in or what situation they're in, if they're free or if they're slave, if their hearts are still hard and rebellious, then they're going to be right back in the same place. If not worse. So Daniel's torn by this as he's praying. And... And the reality is, Israel does go back home. But if you study the book of Ezra, study throughout the Old Testament, even though they're home, it seems clear that they're still not home. Are you tracking with me? They may have their homeland, and they in fact build a temple, but the temple is never refilled by the Holy Spirit. The Shekinah never fills the temple they build. They build. And so even when Jesus returns, it's a sense that they're still in exile. And until Christ comes and gives them new hearts and gives them the new way, they are still in exile, even though they have a physical land. Which is the whole point, a big point of the Old Testament, pointing to ultimately what they're looking for is not that specific geographical land. I know some people would disagree with me. I don't think that's what the ultimate end goal is for Yahweh, for his people. Not that geographical uh, geographical area, but ultimately the new heavens and new earth. And the ultimate inheritance is not the land, but Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's a beautiful thing. But that is the tension we see in throughout the Old Testament. Because even when they come back, it seems like their hearts are, are still the same. Outside of a few exceptions. And to this day, we have not seen that mass repentance from Israel. And we want that to happen. I love this line Dick, Ross shared it with me during prep earlier. They may have returned from Babylon, but Babylon is still in them. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem. They need a heart transplant. So now let's finally go to this petition in light of everything. So Daniel started off in vocation. God, this is who you are. I confess who you are. Then he moved to confession. This is who we are and what we've done. And now, in light of all that, God, do something. So he's gonna appeal to him. Verse 16. Oh Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of your sins. And for the iniquities of our Father, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O oh God, listen to the prayer of your servant, and to his please for mercy. And for your own sake, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. What is Daniel appealing to? Remember why I talked about in the beginning of this sermon, appealing? How we add on a little, do this, God, because of this. What is he appealing to? Well, he's appealing primarily in verse 16 and 17 for God's name, for his glory. Lord, hear us because of you, because your glory. See, because what happened is that that every nation in the ancient world were connected to a God. And based on how they lived, and loved, and treated one another, and their fortunes, and their outcomes in war, would be a reflection on what that God was like. And so for about 70 years, Yahweh looks like all the other puny junior gods around the uh, ancient east, who just is impotent. Can't make it. And so Daniel's saying, God, we represent, Israel represents, that, that empty, broken temple represents you. For your name's sake. Because if you look bad in the nations. Would you do something mighty in your people for your glory? This is the heart of a true Christian. Our prayers are grounded not in our own benefits primarily, but the benefit of what it would do for our God in his kingdom. Oh Lord, please be merciful to us because. Our seat makes you look bad. And I'm just curious, how many of us pray like that? For those of you guys who are longing for a child, or longing for a spouse, or longing for that job, or longing for breakthrough in that one physical ailment you have, or that situation, how much are your prayers grounded in the fact that you are passionate about His glory and His purposes? This is a corrective word for me and for all of us. Because so often, our great passion behind our prayers is, not God, but us. Mm-hmm. We are our great passion. Oh God, do this because of me. I mean, your glory. Yeah. Right, you guys heard me. I said glory, right? Not me, right? Did I say that aloud? Right, like, cause that's that's at the core of us. God, help us. And then Daniel continues to verse 18. One of the greatest prayers I've ever heard and my great burden for this sermon. Would you read carefully? And if I've been going long and you're, you're checking out, please check back in just for this right here. Verse 18. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. Again, appealing to God by his glory. But what's this other appeal that he makes? For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. (laughs) Amen? Amen? What a passage! What a prayer! Lord, we appeal to you not because we are righteous, but because we're not. And because you're gracious and you're merciful. So church, appeal to God, not based on what you've done, but who he is. Let me say that again. Church, when you pray, don't appeal to God based on what you've done, but what he has done and who he is let that be the confidence you have as you approach him, don't approach him with confidence because, oh, I had a great track record this week I didn't miss one devotional time, I didn't miss one quiet time, oh, I didn't mess up in that one scenario this week, therefore I have confidence before you, no, 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 no. you have confidence because of who he is, because he's great in mercy not because of what you've done right. see, because the flip side is terrible, what if you screwed up that week, yeah. what if that week you never prayed, what if that week you totally ignored him? what if that week you fell back right into that addiction a hundred times and can you now not approach him no, his mercy and his character does not change based off of your track record that week. That's right. And that's how we approach him, church. That's how you can go before him, boldly yet humbly, no matter what state you are. Even if you, even if you are at, a, at the deepest valley of darkness and most shame and most embarrassment you've ever experienced, or if you're in the best time of your life with that, you can approach him the same because of his mercy. This is the kind of God he is. Now, I want to make a book recommendation. I know I've been doing this a lot lately, but it's been a couple of months, so... This is one of the best books I've ever read in my life. It is in my top five, and I read a decent amount. Dental and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. I recommend you to read this carefully and slowly um, over and over again. We need this. We need this heart. Let me share a quote from this book to help you understand a little bit more about God's mercy. It's going to be on the screen. Not once are we told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded. Once again, the Bible is one long attempt to deconstruct our natural vision of who God actually is. We have such a twisted view of God that he's just ready. Ooh, I'm just ready. No, no, no. no. He holds back. He's so long-suffering. Remember what he did with Israel? It was hundreds of years coming. He's so patient. But when He, when it comes to mercy, that is so deep and core of who he is. He just, just overflows. It, goos, it oozes out of him. He just pricking once and boom, it comes out. That's the God we have in the Bible. That's the God we see in this text. He is great in mercy and that's why we can approach him. Now, would you read this next passage, verse 19, as we come to a close, verse 19. Read this out loud with me, church, slowly. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Again, appealing to God's fame. Church, appeal to God based on who he is, not what he's done. And now this whole section, we've been talking about Daniel interceding for his people. This term, intercession. Someone standing in the gap, praying on behalf of others. And as I look at this, man, it would be great to have Daniel as your pastor. Hey, I, I'm happy to be your pastor, but i take Daniel 10 out of 10 times to be your pastor over me. Praying for you all the time. But you know what's so encouraging? Is that we have someone better than Daniel interceding for you. Look at Hebrews chapter 7, Verse 23. Speaking of Jesus, the former priests were many in number because they were presented, prevented by death from continuing office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because it continues forever. But consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Church, right now, someone is praying for you in the world and his name is Jesus how encouraging! You know there, there's those people in the world that when they say, "Hey, I've been praying for you," you're like, "Dang, I'm so glad you've been praying for me." And other people are like, "Hey, pray for you," I'm like, "Great, thanks." You know, I mean, no shame. But some people, you know, they really, really pray, right? But we all have Jesus. Jesus interceding for you. Jesus interceding for you in your worst moment. Jesus interceding for you in your best moment. He's praying for you right now. If you blew it this week and you feel so much shame, He's been praying for you. The only way he can pray for you is because he's first forgiven you. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 33. I'm going to again. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. And so, what comes before intercession? No condemnation. How can Jesus intercede for you? Because he was condemned for you. Because he was condemned and was treated as if he did every sin that we ever committed. He was treated as if he did that on the cross so that we can be forgiven and reconciled to the Father and he can make intercession for us daily. That is true for everyone who's trusting in Christ today. But let me say this real quick because we do have a handful of visitors and I don't want to come off too hard but I want to be truthful. If you are not trusting in Jesus you will not have him interceding for All of us in this room one day will see his beautiful face. We will all kneel before the throne on that final day. And when you are judged, either you'll have Jesus standing at your your side, interceding and vouching for you, or you will be alone. And all you'll have is the accuser accusing you. And I appeal to you, if you are not trusting in Jesus, if you're playing with the world, you have one foot in the world, one foot with him. If you're cheating on God, if you're not fully committed to him, today is the day to come to him with all your heart. Because if you don't, I promise you, you're going to be alone on that day. You will have no intercessor. You will have no intercessor. No one standing up for you. You will stand there with your sins alone. So I'm pleading with you. Don't play another day. Don't think, oh, I'll just have another day. I'll do it when I'm older or when I, after I get done with this relationship or after I get done with this sin or after I get done with my goals. So today's the day. Put your trust in Jesus and he will be your intercessor. He will stand in your gap. He will fight for you. He will be merciful to you because that's the kind of God he is. And he will forgive you, cleanse you, to give you a spirit, to transform you, and he will keep you to that final day. So you can see his face, and instead of condemnation, you'll get acceptance forever. And so, church, this week, let us appeal to God. You will mess up this week, you're going to sin. Let us appeal to God, not based on what we've done, but who he is, because of his great mercy and because of his great glory. Let's pray. Father, Jesus, thank you for being this kind of God who is merciful, who is gracious that we can come to you with our weaknesses and our failings. And thank you that there's no shame, there's no sin that is too great for you. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who's clinging to their sin and their shame, that they would come to you not because of their great track record or because of anything else, but because your great mercy and your great glory. Help us believe this and receive this truth right now. In Jesus' name, amen.